In the name of Jesus, amen. Dear saints, today Jesus shows us what great faith looks like. And he does it not through a parable or an illustration, but by pointing to a specific man and to the very words that a man said. And the Holy Spirit looks and holds this up before our eyes so that we would look at it and see this example and see and learn what it means to have great faith. Now, in order to show you what Jesus said, I want to mention a few things about what we know about this centurion in the gospel lesson. The first thing is that he is a centurion, which means he's a very powerful man. Uh, A centurion is a commander of a century of men, of a hundred men. And it means that he called the shots. He's a powerful man in charge of a hundred other powerful men. So he called the shots, he's the man's man, and, he, and we also know he was very good at his job. In fact, that's the second point that we know about him, that because he was skilled and powerful, he was also compensated very well. He could afford to have servants. We see that in the text. He was a very wealthy man. But this is the same centurion that in Luke chapter 7, the same text about this, that this same centurion loved Israel and even built an entire synagogue for the Jews, that he gave his own money and built this synagogue. And he's not even a Jew. He's a Gentile. He's an outsider. And yet through hearing the scriptures, the words of Moses and the prophets, he had come to believe in God. And in hearing that word, he chose to build a synagogue or a church where that word would be preached and advanced in that place. Uh, So in the past 40 years or so, modern archaeologists have actually found this synagogue, the centurion built. Uh, And it wasn't some simple like four-walled structure or some pragmatic multi-purpose room or, or something like this. This was very expensive. And it was beautiful and it was ornate. It was a it was a gorgeous sanctuary. Uh, now, in fact, you can tell how much he loved the word of God by how well he built that synagogue, by, by how well he built the place to worship. Uh, he built something beautiful to match the beauty of the word that he had heard. Now, he could have done anything else with that money. He could have bought another home or started a business or whatever it was, but he chose to build a synagogue because he loved the word of God and he wanted others to hear that word, even if he himself couldn't, wouldn't be allowed in it. That is something. Now, the third thing we know of this centurion is that even though he's very powerful and very wealthy, he is also surprisingly humble which is very, very rare. It's a very rare combination. It doesn't happen often. Luke chapter seven tells us that the centurion didn't even dare to go to Jesus himself, but that he sent his friends to go ask Jesus for this miracle. So Jesus went and when the centurion saw him, he said this, uh, the centurion says, Lord, do not trouble yourself for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you. Now, why would he say that? Well, it's because this centurion knew that he himself is sinful and he knows of the sin that has gone on in his own home under his own roof. 
And this centurion not only knows what has happened under his roof, but he knows that Jesus knows what has happened under his roof. And so he says, don't even come here. I'm not worthy of it. But by saying this, he's confessing who Jesus is. He's ascribing to him omniscience and holiness. And this is why even though the centurion bosses around the strongest soldiers of the day, he humbles himself before Jesus, who is a lowly and meek carpenter. And he doesn't even dare to to approach him. (laughs) Now, the fourth thing we know is that the centurion has great faith. And these are the words he says. He says, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. It's, it's as if uh, the centurion says, look, Jesus, I know what it's like to be the boss. I'm in charge of a hundred other powerful guys and they do everything I say because they're subject to me. I am in charge of a lot of things, but you, Lord, are in charge of all things. I rule some, but you rule all. Even sickness and death. These things have power over us, but not over you. So you don't even have to come, to my roo- uh, uh, come under my roof. You, don't, you already know my home. You know where I live. You already know which servant of mine I'm talking about. You already know the disease that he has. So you just say the word, and I know that my servant will be healed. And then when Jesus heard this, the Bible says he marveled and said to those who followed him, truly, I tell you, With no one in Israel have I found such faith. And later tells the centurion, go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed that very moment. And that reaction from Jesus is astounding. Uh, Every time the word marvel is used in the scriptures, it speaks of people's reaction to Jesus. But in this text, it's talking about Jesus' reaction to a person. And in fact, uh, Jesus, in the scriptures, Jesus, what we know of, only marveled twice. He only had this reaction twice. And the first time was when he went to Nazareth and was rejected by the people. And the scripture says he marveled at their unbelief. He marveled at how unbelieving they were. But the other time is today, and it's the only time Jesus marvels in a positive way. He marvels at the man's faith, at his belief. Jesus had seen great faith before, but this is the only time it says that he has this reaction to it. He marvels at it. So why is that? Uh, What is it about the man's faith that astonished Jesus? Well, it's this. This man, this centurion, relied on Jesus' word alone and nothing else. That's all he needed was the word. He didn't need proof or a sign or a wonder. He didn't need to see the miracle with his own eyes. He didn't even need Jesus there. He didn't need him in the same room as him. He didn't need to go and verify that the servant was better, run tests, or get any sort of verification. The man believed in Jesus before Jesus spoke. He said his word is powerful before I even hear or heard what he says. And he trusted in the power of Jesus before Jesus even said that word. 
Okay, now this is where I think we can learn quite a bit from the centurion. Uh, what I've seen is this uh, through my short years as a pastor, is that some Christians today do indeed have faith in Jesus by the Lord's word. They believe in Jesus through the word of God, but they don't have faith in the Lord's word alone. That some people, on the other hand, also rely upon the word of God and their feelings in addition to it. And there's a second group. There are some Christians who rely upon the word of God and their good works or their obedience, their life, in addition to the word of God. Now, there are other things I can add to the list, but in my experience, these are the two most common things. People will take the word of God and say, I believe God's word, but I'm going to add my feelings to it. Or I believe the word of God and I'm going to add my behavior to it. And then I'll see what comes of it. Um, Those who mix in their feelings with the word of God turn their faith into something very unstable and shaky, something very weak and fragile. They are like a reed shaken in the wind. So if they happen to feel peace and rest and courage and joy and a cheerful heart, and then when they feel that, then they conclude, yes, the word of God is true. My sins are really forgiven. They are, uh, I really am a child of God. And they think the word of God says one thing and my feelings are confirming it. They're in alignment with it. Therefore, it must be true. And then they go on their way, feeling those things, feeling that God loves them. But you know how feelings are that they change every five minutes. They're gonna change within the hour. By the end of the day today, they will have changed. And then what happens? And you feel bad and you feel apathy and indifference and depression and guilt and shame and loneliness. Then you begin to wonder if you were ever a Christian to begin with. And you wonder if you really have true faith or not. And you think Now that I am in this deep melancholy and this awful state, I must have fallen away from the the faith and it just aggravates the situation. And so for these people, when their feelings change, they think God has changed. So they think maybe the Lord is distant from me. Maybe it's all a farce. Maybe he's angry with me and punishing me for something I did or said. And at this point, This is when they will stop listening to the word of God and fall away. Now, you see the problem. We have got to be strong in this regard when it comes to our feelings. We have to be realistic and honest and govern our life in such a way that we know the truth. Look, as a Christian, you're going to have some great and exciting and beautiful days in your life. And as a Christian, you're going to have some awful and boring and ugly days in your life. You will have days full of cheer and days full of sorrow. And it's for this reason that we don't mix our feelings, our emotions with the word of God. We we don't look to our feelings or our heart or emotions for confirmation of what God said to say, is this true? Do I feel it? Uh, We look to the words, Lord, alone and to nothing else. That's it. 
We know that feelings come and go, and most of the time, the majority of the time, they're going to lead us astray, but the word of the Lord endures forever. That's not just a slogan or a tagline, that is truth. The word is true regardless of how you feel. What the Lord says is true regardless of your emotion. All right, now, about those who mix their good works and piety with the word of God. Now, these don't look to their emotion for confirmation, but they will look to their own behavior for confirmation that God's word is true. So what they'll do is they'll mix their life, their conduct with the word of God. And they think, look, I have been diligent in my prayers. I pray often. I have a set schedule. I do devotions every day. I read God's word. I'm controlling my impulses, my outbursts, and they're doing fine. And then they think, yes, the word is true. What God says of me is true. I really am a child of God because I see it. It's tangible. It's in my life. And then it's not long before their commitments falter and fail and their prayer streak ends and they stop reading the bible as frequently as they once did and they feel a spiritual laziness take over their body and their flesh betrays them and they wander off into all sorts of lawless deeds and they can't control their hearts or their hands anymore and they become greedy or adulterous or angry and covetousness, uh, covetous and, and disappointed. And they think this when they fall into sin. They think, what kind of person am I? What am I doing here? Maybe I'm not the child of God that God calls me. Maybe he's not my father. Maybe I never was. Maybe I'm not a Christian. And what these people have done is they've mixed their own behavior with the word of God, with their belief. And they think that God's word of forgiveness is true when they can see the fruit of it in their own actions and their life. And then they go back and forth, boasting one day, proud, and then completely ashamed and despairing the next. Back and forth their entire life. Now, what both of these groups do is they trust the word of God, but not the word of God alone. Anytime you add something to the word of God, anything to the word of God, you lose the certainty of the word of God. If you look to anything inside yourself, in addition to what Jesus has said, then your faith is going to be built on something shaky, something that will crumble in a matter of time. And then you're entirely unsure of what Jesus said, whether it's true or not. And your faith is going to collapse upon himself. You think, look, uh, the scriptures say baptism now saves you. And yet here I am and I've sinned and I've fallen. What is this? Is that word true or not? He says he forgives me. He says that I'm a child of God. He, sa- he tells me to pray our father who art in heaven. And then here I go and I've fallen into sin. This must not be true. I must not be the person the Bible says I am. That God says I am. So your faith will collapse on itself in a matter of time if you do this. But when you look to Jesus alone, then it is certain and sure. Now, here's the tricky thing. (laughs) There's another problem that comes up right now. And you may say, ah, yes, okay. I need to look to Jesus. I need to trust his word alone. But then instead of doing that, you begin to trust 
in how much you trust in Jesus. Do you see that? Uh, This is what our sinful heart is doing. It's constantly going back to ourselves. As soon as I say, trust the word of God alone, you're tempted to look at your own heart and say, well, how am I trusting in God? Is my, is my trust in God pure enough? Is my trust in the word strong enough? What's going on with my trust? And you're focused back on yourself. You trust in how much you trust Jesus. You think that Jesus' word of forgiveness is true only if I believe it is true. And then you begin to wonder if you have enough faith to make it true for you. And then you're back to where you begin. So your faith is then looking at your own faith instead of to Jesus. Um, Now, I want to take a moment here and kind of explain this in an anecdote or something that just happened recently and tell you about our dear brother, Don Herzog, who died about a week and a half ago now and whose funeral was on Tuesday of this week. Now, as you may know, Don had Parkinson's disease and he was completely immobile toward the end of his life. Couldn't move. And Sandra, his wife, told me that the main question, I, this, uh, this man was a brilliant man. He asked questions about everything, sought the answers to all things. But the main question on his mind in his final days, it's not anything, about going, anything going on in the world, nothing about his health, if there's going to be a cure, if there's hope, nothing, none of that nature. The main question on his mind was this. He said, I just want to be certain that my sins are forgiven. That was, that was the main thing he wanted to find out before he died. And so I visited for him for the last time, and I went to the hospital and saw him um, there on his bed. And after leading a brief service of the word for him, I sang him the hymn, um, Lord, Thee I Love With All My Heart, especially verse 3. And I preached to him a brief sermon, and I said this. I said, Don, I hear that you just want to be certain that all of your sins are forgiven. Is that right? And then he, he nodded his head. And then I said, well, Don, I'm here to tell you that all of your sins were forgiven a very long time ago when Jesus died on the cross for you. And when you were baptized, Jesus gave you all of that forgiveness, every ounce of it. And there's nothing left. Your sins were forgiven and they always will be. And that is certain and sure. And then I said, Don, the certainty of your forgiveness doesn't depend upon how certain you are of your forgiveness. The certainty of your forgiveness depends on Jesus. So even if you waver now and doubt the forgiveness of your sins, Don, Jesus doesn't. And he is certain and he is sure that he has forgiven you. Heaven and earth will pass away and soon dawn you will too. But Jesus' word endures forever. So die in peace. Your sins are forgiven. And then he could barely speak or say anything else. And he used every last effort in his body to pick up his head and then say amen. Which means yes, it shall be so. This is certain. Do you see this? Don's faith didn't strengthen the word or make it true. The word of God strengthened him, his faith. His weak and weary heart was strengthened by the certainty of God's forgiveness that he gives to him.
This, dear saints, God's word is the same and has taken, and God would have you take your faith away from your feelings, take your faith away from your works, take your faith even away from your faith and put your faith only in the word, in Jesus. His word is all you need. And he speaks it, and it is. And all these years later, his word is still true. To you who are guilty of sin against God, who have come in this day guilty with your heart weighed down, Jesus says, I forgive you, and you're forgiven. To you who feel uh, empty and numb, who don't feel like a child of God anymore, Jesus says, I have redeemed you, I have called you by name, you are mine, and you're his. Do you feel that God is distant and far away from you, that he's nowhere to be found? Jesus says, I will never leave you nor forsake you, and he doesn't. When you're afflicted by doubt and pain and worry and wonder if this forgiveness is really for you, Jesus stands before you and says, take and eat. This is my body given for you for the forgiveness of your sins. And when Jesus was suffering the wrath of God on the cross for you, for your sins and for the sins of the whole world, Jesus said, it is finished. And it was. And so when the day comes that God has determined that your days are full, and when your last hour comes, Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise and his angels will carry you home. Lord, you just say the word. I don't need to see it. I don't need to feel it. I don't need to experience it. I don't need evidence or proof or change. I only need the word. Only say the word, Lord, and it will be done. Amen. The peace of God which surpasses all understanding. Guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen.